But I want to go ahead and open us in prayer and get us into the teaching of God's Word. So, Father, we thank you for this evening that we're able to gather together to look into your Word, to learn from Scripture. We find, Lord, in life that a lot of the things that have taken place in times past, we can connect to those struggles, the sufferings, the victories that have been written for us in the pages of Scripture. Although, Lord, we are, as far as time is concerned, far removed from the events that we're reading about in Genesis 33 through 35, we find that humanity is very similar. And, Lord, we all have struggles, struggles between one another, struggles in nations, Uh, struggles within the families, and also, Lord, struggle with you. And so, Father, we hope and pray, Lord, tonight you would guide us that through the struggles of this life, we would know that our victory is in Christ Jesus, our Lord, and that in our Savior Jesus, we would always put our trust. We ask in the name of Jesus, amen. As I said, we have a lot of territory to cover, but I did this purposely because some of the things that are taking place, though important in Scripture, they're kind of, we're in this transition area in these next few chapters, even into our teaching for next week as well. And we learn a few events that took place in the life of Jacob and Esau and his family. But also we find that the book of Genesis will be preparing for the story of Joseph. So before we get into the story of Joseph, which will take up a majority of the remainder of the book of Genesis, we have some things that need to be wrapped up for us, some things that loose ends, we might say, that need to be tied up. So Genesis 33, I titled this section, The Reunion, And I titled the overall teaching, Returning to Bethel. And we find that in Genesis 33, verse 20, is what I have given for the key verse. Then Jacob erected an altar there and called it Eloi Israel. And so we'll get into the meaning of that term. When we get to that verse in verse 20, but we find Jacob heading back. To the promised land. It begins with a joyful embrace, two brothers reuniting again after 20 years. And the Bible tells us that after Jacob had wrestled with the Lord, that in Genesis 33, verse 1, he lifted up his eyes and he looked, and there Esau was coming. Now, he had already heard that Esau was coming with 400 of his trained men. And so Jacob had been greatly afraid and distressed at this point. And although after his wrestling match with the Lord, he came from that wrestling match with a new name, but also with a new crutch. He didn't have a crutch before, but now he was crippled. And though he no longer struggled with God, because there at Jabbok, he had struggled with God and prevailed according to the word of God. He continued to struggle 
with his brother Esau? Or would it be a struggle? He didn't know. He'd been gone for 20 years. All he knew is that Esau was coming with 400 men. And he looked up and no doubt looking over the distance, he saw the perhaps at first the cloud rising up of the uh, traffic of the camels, horses. I'm not sure what they were riding. And just before Esau's arrival, the Bible tells us in Genesis 33, verses 2 and 3, that Jacob divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maidservants, and he put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last. So even in this, we find Jacob's favoritism revealed and the value that he placed upon his wives and their children. He kind of put them in order. I believe that the thought of Jacob, that if harm comes to the first or second group, at least the rest of us might be able to escape. But it really wouldn't make you feel very well if you were part of that first group and the sons of the maidservants who were there in that group. But it was after Esau arrived, Jacob set his wives and their children in order and bowed to Esau seven times. Traditionally, uh, the bowing of the seven times was customary to the greeting of a king. But to Israel's surprise, Esau ran to meet him, verse 4, embraced him, fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. All this anxiety, all this distress was for naught. Esau held no grudge. Esau was overjoyed to see his brother, Jacob. Proverbs 16, 7 tells us, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. And although time had helped to heal this womb, we have to know that God was in this as well. And so then there was the customary meeting of the family in verses 5 through 7. It tells us, so he lifted up his eyes, Esau lifting up his eyes. He saw the women and the children. And he says, who are these who are with you? So Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servants. Just recognize the lowly position that Jacob takes with his brother. Technically, Jacob had the blessing and the birthright. Technically, he was in authority over his brother as far as uh, family lineage would go at this point. Uh, the hierarchy, I guess we would better say. And yet he refers to himself as a servant. He had bowed before Esau seven times uh, when he approached him. And then it was verses six and seven. The maidservants came near. And they and their children and bowed down. And Leah also came near with her children and they bowed down, and afterwards Joseph and Rachel came near, and they bowed down. And so Joseph comes with his favorite bride, Rachel, and their son. No doubt he's not mentioned here, but their son Joseph, and bowing down before his brother again. Again, we see that servant attitude, humility, even in verse 7. Joseph bowing down before him. For 20 years, these two brothers have been separated from one another because of Jacob dealing deceitfully with his brother Esau by stealing 
his birthright and his blessing. And Esau initially had hated his brother, wanted to see him killed. In fact, had told his friends that as soon as dad is gone, I am going to kill him. The problem is, is dad's still around. Dad didn't die off as quickly as Isaac had thought. Isaac already blind when he gave the blessing to Jacob, dimmed with the years that had been before him, thinking that life didn't, there wasn't much time in his life. He actually would live, I believe, another 47 years. There was plenty of time for God to work out things. And yet, often we try to rush the hand of God. We knew the promises of God. We knew in this situation, according to the book of Genesis, that Jacob would rise up over his brother. That promise was given to his mother, Rebekah, and yet she tried to lend God a hand and made a terrible mess of it, so much so that she had to send Jacob away, and while he was gone, she would die, and the mother and son who loved one another so much would never see each other again this side of heaven. And yet, there they were for 20 years with this broken and unresolved relationship, and things worked out by the grace of God. And no doubt there are numerous people who have broken and unresolved relationships because of things that have happened years before, and they harbor these feelings, and they uh, fear even connecting with the individual or the people to bring healing when healing might be very well available. It could be that someone who has an unresolved relationship, a broken relationship, takes the time to return and to bring healing. They could find out that there will be weeping and kissing and hugging instead of a battle that they are fearing. Well, we each find both the brothers admit to one another that they are blessed enough in verses 8 through 11. After greeting one another, Esau asked about the gifts that Jacob had sent ahead to him. Remember, in previous chapter, Jacob had sent presents in Genesis 32, 15, or verses 14 and 15. He had sent presents of 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milk camels and their coats and 40 cows and 10 bulls as well as 20 female donkeys and their foals. And so a great host of animals had been sent ahead that Jacob had given to Esau as gifts. He was trying to butter up his brother, no doubt, that he wouldn't bring harm against him. And Jacob responded as Esau asked, what about all these things that you sent ahead, these animals? In verses 8 and 9, it tells us, These are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. Again, taking that position of humility in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Yet Jacob responded in Genesis 33, verses 10 and 11. No, please, if I found favor in your sight, then receive my present from your hand, inasmuch as I have seen your face, as though I had seen the face of God, and you were pleased with me. Please take my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. So he urged him, and he took it. 
I love it that both brothers came to this place where no longer were they trying to get from their brother the things that they had had. Both at this point said, I have enough. Esau, despite of Jacob's treacheries, was able to say to his brother, I have enough. And Jacob, even though he was on the run and he left 20 years earlier with only his staff in his hand, he came back a rich and wealthy man and surely had much blessings from God. Yet there was a big difference between the two brothers. Israel recognized that his blessings came from God alone. And perhaps this is why Israel, being a man of God, was able to give praise to God for the blessings that the Lord had given to him. On the other hand, Esau was a man of the flesh. And though God had blessed him greatly, it doesn't appear that he acknowledged God in that blessing. And you've probably met people like that who have been blessed greatly by God. They have great abilities, great talents, great wealth perhaps, great influence. And sometimes they just feel that it's all because of their abilities that these things have come to them without recognizing that God was in the process of their being able to have the influence, the abilities that they have. But I think it's a good thing that the Bible tells us that they would go their separate ways. Esau, as I said, was a man of the flesh. Israel, on the other hand, was a man of God. Now, you're going to see me go back and forth between Jacob and Israel, and I'm not going to do it accurately as I would like. I'll probably just mix them up. But when we talk about Jacob or Israel here, we're talking about the same man. Jacob was the name that was given to him when he was born. His name meant heel catcher. Esau called Jacob 20 years earlier a supplanter because he had stolen his birthright and his blessing. He was a deceiver. But God had changed all that in that wrestling match there at the brook Jabbok. God changed all that and also changed the name of Jacob from heel catcher to Israel, a man who was governed by God, a man dependent upon God. That's what God does in our lives. He changes the outcome of our lives by coming into our hearts. As Paul acknowledged to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, 13 and 14, saying, although I was a formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Paul acknowledged in my past life, I was not a good person. And he described himself as a former blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. And yet he obtained mercy and grace because the faith and love of Jesus Christ toward him. Paul not only found mercy, he found God's grace as well. 
which he described as exceedingly abundant. In other words, the abundant grace of God was much more sufficient to cover the multitude of Paul's sins. Paul's testimony proves that the abundant grace of God is also available to us as well. As the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.17, For if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. This past Sunday here at church when we were having a meal after church and I was sitting with one of the newer couples of our church and they were talking about our worship music and saying, you kind of have this Southern Baptist feel. And I said, well, I'm not surprised. I was raised in a Southern Baptist church. So I guess it fits. But going back to that Southern Baptist heritage and maybe even beyond that, I can't go back all the way. But there was a hymn written in 1910 that we sung often in church by Julia Johnston. The name of the hymn is Grace Greater Than Our Sin. And the opening lines, or the chorus of this hymn, goes like this. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. The two brothers met. There were a reunion that took place here. Old things that they had harbored against one another. All that stuff was done away with. There was a reunion between the brothers. But the brothers themselves were two different types of people. In the sense that one was a man who was governed by his flesh and the other was a man who was governed by God. And the reason Israel became Israel was because of the great grace of God, that grace that is greater than all of our sin. And that stands true to this day. Well, we pick up in verses 12 through 20, and we discover that there's a house, booths, a tent, and an altar. And this finishes out our chapter, this section. And we begin with a a house and many booths. In verses 12 through 17, after their reunion, Esau said to his brother Israel, let us take our journey and let us go, and I will go before you. And though all was forgiven, we find that Jacob made excuses as to why he could not travel with Esau. In verse 13, he said, To Esau, the children are weak and the flock and the herds are nursing. It seemed like Jacob was trying to prevent this traveling back with Esau. Actually, I believe Jacob had different plans of his own and he didn't want Esau to interfere with them. And that they would actually plan to meet together, but Jacob wouldn't go to that meeting place. He would go to a totally different area and although Jacob's actions seemed to reveal a distrust with his brother I believe again it was good for them to split up like their great-grandfather Abraham and his nephew Lot of which the Bible says in Genesis 13:6, now the land was not able to support them that they might dwell together 
for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And it was necessary for them to divide in the land of promise. And I believe it was necessary for Jacob to remain separate from his brother, even though they had a good reunion. Well, the reunion was over and it's kind of like Christmas sometimes. The relatives come over and it's good to see them, but you really don't want them living there for the rest of the year. It's like, okay, party's over, time to go home. Maybe you guys are different, but sometimes it's good to have the division. We work better, we do better in our individual family units. But also, I think there's something else at play. I've already mentioned that Esau was a man of the flesh, Israel, a man whose heart was governed by God. And it reminds me of Paul, who said in 2 Corinthians 6:14, to do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness and what communion has light with darkness? And so in order for Jacob to have the right influence over his family, which he is going to struggle with, which we'll see tonight. It was better for him to remain separate from his brother. So it was, verses 16 and 17. So Esau returned that day on his way to Sire, and Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth, built himself a house, and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of that place was called Sukkoth. Sukkoth simply means booths. Here we find Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, and this was his own doing, which was in the land of Canaan. And when he had come from Padan Aram, and he pitched his tent before the city, I kind of scratched my head. He built a house. He made booths, barns for his animals. And then now he's pitching the tent again. He must have been a nomadic boy. He just was on the move, but that's how Bedouins operated. So after he had settled down at Sukkoth, he built a house and booths for himself. He bought some of the land there in Shechem, pitched a tent there, and built an altar to the Lord. This is significant. This altar was a witness to all those in the promised land, the land of Canaan right now, that he was a man of God, that he worshipped as his father Isaac did and his grandfather Abraham did before him. And he named the altar there El Elohi Israel, or God, the God of Israel. And this was the first time that the Bible tells of Jacob building an altar before the Lord. And so it was important for him as he came back to have this altar in Genesis 33, verse 20, the key verse. So he erected an altar there and called it El Elohi, Israel, God, the God of Jacob. In Genesis 32, 28, God had told Jacob, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. And perhaps there is a, a reunion like Jacob had with his brother Esau. Maybe there's a reunion in our future to bring some healing and broken relationships. If so, first, like Jacob, may we also take our concerns to the Lord 
and let Jesus help bring peace in the process. Remember, the Bible promises and tells us in 1 Peter 5, 7, to cast all of our cares upon the Lord because he cares for us. That the Lord is able to bring healing in those difficult situations. Luke 9, 11 reminds us, but when the multitudes knew it, they followed Jesus and he received them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who had need of healing. And the Lord is there ready to bring healing into our lives, into our relationships with him and with others. But I think it's important that we uh, build those altars in our lives. I'm not saying that we have to build a physical altar, but spiritually, perhaps, if you were to build an altar, what would you name your altar? I was thinking about this today, and I, I was thinking of these words, Jesus, the God of John. As I worship my Savior Jesus, I pray that you do as well. So he's an altar builder now. The first time we read about this, he set up stone. He's anointed stones before 20 plus years earlier when he slept there in Bethel and had the dream of the ladder going up to heaven and the angels ascending and descending upon the ladder and the Lord talking to him from heaven in that place. He had set up the stone that he had used as a pillow. He anointed it with oil, but it was not an altar. Here we find in Genesis 33, 20, he built his first altar, which let people know in the land that God was Israel's God. And I think we should let people know that we belong to Jesus. Maybe we do it with stickers on the back of our vehicles, with T-shirts that we might wear, but most certainly by the conduct, how we act with others, and how we speak with others. Genesis 34 is a difficult chapter because of an incident that happened to Jacob's daughter, Dinah. I gave her the key verse merely because it talked about honor, but it did say, so the young man did not delay to do this thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. He was more honorable than all the household of his father. So this is talking about a young man named Shechem in Genesis 34, 19. And it said he was more honorable than all his household. But Shechem would do a very dastardly thing. As the Bible tells us of this great danger with Dinah, the daughter of Leah. In verse 1 it says, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And by Dinah going out to the daughters of the land, there was a great danger there, and I can understand it partly. She was a young girl. And we don't know how many. We know she had uh, 11 brothers by this time. The Bible is silent as to any other sisters, but I have to believe that there were sisters but as she went out into the land, she was going out into the land of unbelievers. So there's the danger there. As a descendant of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they were to be a people unto themselves. In Psalm 106, future generations that would follow Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob after they came 
out of the land of Egypt, and we're talking about hundreds of years later, 40 years in the wilderness, entering into the promised land, probably into the time of the judges, but also during the time of the kings. They had the same danger. The children of Israel, the Bible tells us in Psalm 106, 35 and 36, that they mingled with the Gentiles. They learned their works. They served their idols and they became a snare to them. And so there's the danger of Dinah going out to the daughters of the land that as she learns their customs and their worshiping false idols, then that in itself would become a snare to her. But there was another danger that she did not anticipate. Soon after she had went out to visit the daughters of the land, Shechem saw her, he took her, lay with her, and violated her. The Hebrew word that is translated as violate has a variety of meanings. It could mean to occupy, to oppress, or to humble. And Shechem truly humbled Dinah by forcing her to have sexual relations with him. Today we simply would call this rape. And perhaps Dinah should have not gone out to the daughters of the land. Still, Shechem was responsible for his own actions. There were proper ways of doing things, and he chose the wrong path. If he had truly loved her, as it says in verse 3, he would have never violated her in this way. In verse 3 and 4, it says, So his soul was strongly attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, Give me this young woman as a wife. And so he kind of did things backwards. As we know, it happens. It still happens to this day. But there would be laws that would be set in place. The law of Moses in Exodus 22, 16 and 17 actually addresses a situation like this where it says, if a man entices a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall surely pay the bride's price for her to be his wife. And if the father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay the money according to the bride price of the virgins. Either way, the guy was going to pay. And this became codified in the law of Moses. So what happened here would happen in the times of Moses. God would codify it in the law of Moses to be a guidance for the children of Israel. So a plea came from Hamar. I was letting my computer read back to me, and maybe they got it right, but they always said his name is Hammer, and I, I just can't say Hammer. It seems wrong. So I'll say Hamor and I'll be wrong, but uh, I think it's it's funny, um, Jewish versus English. And, you know, we try to get it right, but we're probably way off. When we went out to California in 92 to 94 and lived there for a couple of years, I discovered that my home, hometown, Zion, Illinois, uh, they wouldn't say Zion out in California. They'd say Zion. And uh, so I used to make fun of my California brothers in the school of ministry who would say Zion. And I would ask them, do you say Lion or do you say Lion? And uh, I was just trying to say that Zion, Lion, Zion, Lion, how are you going to say it? But in the Hebrew, they might be more correct on that one. 
But I'm from Zion, Illinois. I'll just leave it at that. In verses 5 through 12, Hamar takes, I did say Hamar, Hamar takes Jacob, came to Jacob, requested that he allow Dinah to become his son's wife. Yet Jacob held his peace because his sons were not present with him. But when Jacob's sons arrived, Hamar laid out his plan for the two people to, the groups to marry together, to intermarry. In verses 8 through 12, we read the plan of Hamar. He said, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife and make marriages with us and give your daughters to us and take our daughters to yourselves. So you shall be dwell with us and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade in it and acquire possessions for yourselves in it. Then Shechem said to her father and brothers, so now the son is speaking for himself. Verse 11, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me whatever dowry and gift and I will give according to what you say to me, but give me the young woman as a wife. And although Hamer and Shechem seem to sincere at this point, we do find out later in verse 23 that they also wanted to acquire the wealth of Jacob. Jacob was a very wealthy person. Remember all the gifts that he'd already given away to his brother? And no doubt he had much more than these. But once again, just as oil and water doesn't mix, neither can the children of God mix with the children of men. It never works out well, even though we see it continually happening to this day. First Peter 4, verses 3 and 4, it says, For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, rivalries, drinking parties, abominable idolatries. In regards to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dispensation, speaking evil of you. So there's a point, and you have perhaps have discovered this, coming to faith in Jesus Christ. You try to hang out with your old buddies, old girlfriends that you'd once known before, and you do things differently, and suddenly, 1 Peter 4.4 4, they think it's strange that you do not run with them any longer. In fact, they end up speaking evil of you. And that can be true initially. But one thing I've also learned over time is that those who may speak evil of you because of your faith in Jesus Christ, sometimes they come to a placing of calamity in their life when they need someone who is solid and they turn to perhaps a believing brother and sister. It made me think of, and it has nothing to do with calamity, but when I was a brick mason and our union business agent, the BA, the guy that kind of held up uh, local 20 here in the Waukegan area where I was, that I was part of at the time, it doesn't exist anymore, but um, I knew the business agent. In fact, we've worked on jobs together before he became the business agent. And I went in and stopped him one day just to chat with him. And 
he hired an assistant, and this guy was known for drinking and smoking, and he liked his buddies who drank and smoked as well. And yet when he hired his assistant, he hired a Christian brother of mine. And so I, I plainly asked, I said, why'd you hire him? And he said, first of all, he said, I knew that if I hire any of my buddies, you know, politically it would be a bad move. So I couldn't hire any of my drinking buddies. That was off the table. And he said, I just went through, back in the day, the Rolodex. Remember those? <laughs> I scrolled through my phone. It was a Rolodex. And he said, I kept stopping on this guy's name. And he ended up hiring someone that was totally opposite of what he was. Interesting. They think it's strange and they speak evil of you, but sometimes when push comes to shove, they might be looking and asking you for prayer when the events of life turn in a negative way. So there's a promise of peace, but it's actually deceit. In verses 13 through 24, the sons of Jacob consented when, on one condition, that every male of you is circumcised, verse 15, and being pleased with this condition and the future prospect of their two people becoming one, Hamor, Shechem, and all the men agreed all their males would be circumcised. And yet verse 13 tells us that Jacob's sons spoke deceitfully. Spoke deceitfully there in verse 14. Jacob's sons, they had no doubt learned from their dad how to deceive, how to scheme, how to trip people up. The Bible tells us they spoke deceitfully because Shechem had defiled their sister, and although they made promises to become one people with the Canaanites, they were actually plotting their destruction. And sadly, Jacob had passed on his scheming and supplanting ways to his sons. Also in verse 19, we learn that Shechem actually seemed sincere in his love toward Dinah at this point. In verse 19, again, I read it earlier, the young man did not delay to do the thing. Because he delighted in Jacob's daughter, he was more honorable than all the household of his father. And Shechem being more honorable, might better read, as he was honored before all his father's household. He was a man of high honor among his people. But that doesn't mean he was a man of high honor before God. In fact, he did a very unhonorable thing when he took and violated Dinah. Nevertheless, Shechem readily consented to be circumcised. To this day, we discover that unbelievers will profess faith in Christ if it might gain them a desired outcome. It could be a man professing faith in Jesus because he wants to marry a Christian girl. Or vice versa. It could be a politician that uses churchy language because he wants to get the votes of the Christians and he's just using the churchy language. 
Or maybe it's a business person who has a Christian emblem. Maybe not so popular now, but they're still out there. They have the fish. They have the dove. They have the cross. They profess Christ, but are they actually Christians? The Bible actually tells us in 2 Corinthians 11, 13 through 15, that such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself will transform himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose ends end will be according to their works. They're just plotting. They're just scheming. And it happens to this day. Like the false apostles, the deceitful workers of Paul's day, unbelievers might profess faith as a means to an end, wanting whatever they might gain from the situation for Shechem. It was his desired marriage with Dinah. However, Three days later, verses 25 through 31. While the men were still sore from being circumcised, Simeon and Levi, verse 25, each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. And afterwards, the other sons of Jacob came and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled, verse 27. We continue and read the sons of Jacob came upon the slain, they plundered the city. Because their sister had been defiled, they took the sheep, their oxen, their donkeys, what was in the city and what was in the field, all their wealth, all the little ones and their wives, they took captive, and they plundered even all that was in their houses. Sadly, it appears that the sons of Jacob took advantage of the situation that they could gain their own wealth and possibly their own families and their wives. We're not sure how old these were by this time, but if we go back to the time that Jacob was with Uncle Laban and worked seven years to gain his first wife, was deceived and was given Leah, and then worked another seven days and married Rachel, and then ended up with both Leah and Rachel's Uh, handmaids, having 11 sons by this time, at least one daughter, that there was 13 years there with Laban. And now they've traveled back. More time had passed. And these men are strong enough now to do war, to do battle, even though it wasn't a fair battle. So Jacob feared what the other inhabitants of the land might do, and I can't blame them. In verses 30 through 31, he said, You have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me, and I shall be destroyed, my household and I. But they said, the brothers, the sons answered, Should he have treated our sister like a harlot? So that's all they ever said. Yet the old adage still remains true to this day. Two wrongs do not make a right. True, it was wrong for Shechem to rape Dinah. But it was also wrong for Simeon and Levi to take their swords and kill all the men 
of that city and to plunder for the other brothers. The other brothers came right along. They didn't do the killing, but they were part of the plundering. And as for Simeon and Levi, dad would never forget because in Genesis 49, verses 5 through 7, when he blesses his sons before his death, he says of Simeon and Levi, he said, Simeon and Levi are brothers, instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united with their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. So dad would take this right to his grave with him. And instead of actually blessing his sons before his death, he spoke of their cruel and fierce anger. True honor might best be seen through another of Jacob's son, Joseph. And I don't know where Joseph played into this. It did say that the uh, sons of Jacob plundered this city and perhaps Joseph He was right there with his brothers at this time. We know that he was young because when we get into the story of Joseph and we start learning about him, he'll be right around 17 years old. So he's still a teenager. Maybe he was too young to be involved in this situation. But when he became captive there in Egypt, a slave in the land of Egypt, when Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him and tried to do so daily, his response would be in Genesis 39.9, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And even though he was accused of rape and in prison for 13 years, it was God who exonerated him and allowed him to rise in power in the land of Egypt. Proverbs 21.21 tells us, He who follows righteousness and mercy finds life, righteousness, and honor. And may we be a people who desire to walk in true honor before God and others. And finally, should I say finally? Maybe not. We'll just hold this off till next week. And we'll talk about Jacob's return to Bethel. And we'll start right there and then... uh, Learn about the family of Esau in chapter 36. And also learn of the 12 sons of Jacob. So we'll go ahead and close out here tonight. To recap just a few things that we looked at tonight. There's going to be hardships in this life. And sometimes we'll have difficulties in relationships and sometimes uh, they'll be broken in several relationships that'll go on for years and years and years for Jacob and Esau 20 plus years had passed there's a lot of anxiety a lot of fear that fear and anxiety actually caused Jacob to wrestle with God and changed his life so sometimes God can use these difficult circumstances to draw us to himself But it is God also who can allow healing to take place in those relationships. Whether the healing comes or not, we must be a people who stand in the ways of the Lord, 
who become a witness and a testimony before others, not as Jacob's sons became in the land of Canaan. For at least a season, they would be known as cruel and wicked men. That would be the perception. And maybe at this time, they did not have God in their hearts. And maybe that's what they were. But God would do a work in each of these men's lives. And we hope that Dinah herself, we have no other information of her, that God brought healing in her difficult situation because those things happen to this day. And it's very hard and difficult on the family. And dealing with it is not an easy thing. But we find that God is God Elohi Israel. God, the God of Israel to this day. And for us as believers in Jesus Christ, may it be that Jesus is the God of our lives as we worship him as our Lord and Savior. The Lord promises in 2 Corinthians 6.18, I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord God Almighty. Here on Wednesday evenings, we have been going through the ABCs of salvation And the A speaks about the necessity of admitting to God that we are sinners and asking for his forgiveness. For the Bible tells us in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But there in 1 John 1.9, the Bible blesses us by saying, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In fact, 1 John 1, 7 tells us the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. It's because of the work of Jesus Christ that we're able to find forgiveness from God, but we have to confess that sin. We have to admit to God that we are sinners, ask for his forgiveness. The B stands for believe. Believe in the work that Jesus did upon the cross, his death, burial, resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of the father today the bible tells us in romans 5 8 but god demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were yet sinners christ died for us god demonstrates to this day that demonstration is seen through the cross of christ and finally the c is for confess to confess our faith in jesus christ not only confessing to God, but before others, as the Bible tells us in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Romans 10:13. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Certainly, if you're with us here tonight and need prayer, have a prayer need, would like to talk to me, I am available for you here after church. Those listening on radio tonight or through our social media page, and you have questions regarding faith or a prayer need, please email us at cclv at comcast.net, cclv at comcast.net. You can also go to our church's webpage where you can submit prayer requests anonymously there. Submit those prayer requests. We got a couple this week at cclv 
cclv.org, cclv.org. You can also find out other information about our church, about our ministries, and how to support our fellowship at cclv.org. This coming Sunday, we're looking at Revelation chapter 16, the seven bold judgments. We look forward to being with you this coming Sunday, either here at Calvary Chapel, through our social media page, or via WLGS radio. Let's go ahead and stand and pray. We thank you, Father, for your word. These passages, Lord, it's just family life, both the good and bad of family life, being shown to us here in Genesis 33 and 34. Brothers reunited after 20 years and uh, hardships that befell a family once they came back into the promised land. Lord, we can have those things happen in our life where there's celebration, um, joy, reuniting of brothers and sisters, family members, and then hardship that befall the family, and difficult struggles that you wonder even if your family will survive. And Jacob, at the end of chapter 34, said that they will just wipe us out because of what his sons had done. And Lord, we're grateful that you can work through all those things. The good thing that Jacob had done was build an altar unto you to let those in the land know that he was a God worshiper, God, the God of Israel. May it be, Lord, that although we don't build physical altars today, may it be that those who know us would know that we are Jesus' people, that we worship Jesus and we live for him. We ask, Lord, that you would be with us, with our family, with this fellowship. We thank you for all you've done. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless.